Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me Heather Noble and me Tracy Jones and this week we're starting the show talking about wine and cheese. Why not indeed? Actually we're talking about something that me and Heather were we're trying to get the name of and we, we struggled a little bit. We knew it started with Appalachian and then yes. um, we, we, I had to do a little bit of Googling. But it's essentially the geographical protection of certain products, which in French is Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, otherwise known as AOC. And that's the French certification given to wine, cheese, butter and other agricultural products based on their geographical indications. Now, I was intrigued to find, Heather, this one's particularly for France, so um, I, I just thought it the same terminology applied in the UK as well, but we've got our own terms in the UK. But this AOC, the Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, I'm not going to say that again because I'm going to get it wrong, um, it actually dates back to 1411, not the time, the year, when Roquefort was regulated by parliamentary decree. So that apparently you told me earlier on when we were speaking that this is to do with the particular mould that's used in Roquefort. Is that it right? has to be, yeah. Well, it ha- well it has to be um, made from the milk of a certain breed of sheep, and it has to be matured in the natural caves near the town of Roquefort, sur Suzon. So, where it is colonised by the fungus Penicillium rock 40 that grows in these caves so it's ve- it's very specialized so i don't know what the sheep what type of sheep it, it needs to be but it's got to be in that cave oh right okay well isn't the similar mold used in stilton now that's an interesting one because that's got this thing called protected designation of origin status or pdo and it can only be made in I think it's three counties, Derbyshire, Leicestershire and Nottinghamshire. But sadly, the village, Stilton, you can't actually make Stilton in Stilton, which is a, a peculiarity of this um, this status. Um, a company called the Original Cheese Company did apply to include the village of Stilton in the PDO, but it was rejected, apparently. That, it, really, that doesn't make sense, does it? It seems a little peculiar, doesn't it? I, I'm not quite sure as to um, if you went, if you sold cheese in Stilton and said this is Stilton cheddar cheese, <laughs> whether you you probably would be accused of um, breaking the the regulations around it, or this is Stilton milk chocolate or something, even though you're saying it's just made in Stilton. Yeah, well, it's the thing is where it's I thought it started to get particularly complicated was where it talks about so for the um for the Stilton it's um PDO protected designation of origin and and that has to be so the product has to be produced processed and prepared in one area and have distinct characteristics from this area Whereas then when you get on to um, tradition, uh, the other one, sorry. Protected geographical indication. Yeah. yeah. So, so that is produced, processed or 
prepared in the geographical area you want to associate it with. So the one is or prepared and the other is and prepared. And there's and another one as well that you started to mention, traditional speciality guaranteed. Yeah. TSG. This relates to products which are traditional or have customary names and have a set of features with, which distinguish them from similar products. So, Heather, I'm guessing, do you think it might be a good idea if we actually had a look at the list of these products to see? Go on. Okay. Now, all of a sudden, uh, I've lost the link, but there we go. <laughs> um, that just while I'm scrabbling around to get the link, uh, there's some really useful resources on um, gov.uk pages. Um, there's a full list of UK registered products under the protected food name scheme, which includes PDO, PGI and TSG. But there's also an interesting list of protected food names, um, applications that are being considered and also a list of ones that have been rejected as well. So quickly, I'm just going to try and get to the list of products. Right. So some examples of um, PDO. So Beaconfell traditional Lancashire cheese. That's the same as Stilton. So protected designation of origin okay and then an example of protected geographical indication is dorset blue cheese so it doesn't okay. seem very different to stilton but clearly there is a difference there now there aren't many of these tsgs uh, let me see gloucestershire old spot pork okay so it must Special have a traditional name yeah and characteristics that distinguish it from other similar products. So it's the it's the type of pig, isn't it? It's the old spot bit. Yeah. Okay. And let's have a look. Um, Native Shetland wool has got PDO. Anglesey sea salt is also protected food name, as you might expect. Which are the ones that have been rejected? Well, no, I, I'm sure that this can't be a full list of the ones that have been rejected because there was only one thing on the list. Bear with me. Oh, just got distracted by uh, <laughs> Cornish pasties. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, it, yeah, it, it, protects, it, it, we it? haven't had we haven't had supper, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Don't go looking at food products <laughs> when you're absolutely starving. Top tip there for Heather from Heather yeah. and Quincy. <laughs> so protected food name applications being considered, and right at the bottom is um protect products where applications are no longer being considered. And that would be, and the only one on the list is Devon Cider. Okay. And, it, and it has been concluded that this application doesn't satisfy the requirements of the scheme. And if you click on the link, it opens the application and also the decision letter. And this was from back in November 2018. But things being considered at the moment are, um, let's have a look, Dundee cake, watercress. Watercress? Yeah. Uh, Cambrian mountain lamb and Gower salt marsh lamb. 
And then products at national consultation, I'm not quite sure what the difference there is, is Tewkesbury mustard. Okay. Wow. Well, if you're listening and you are, <laughs> you're manufacturing or hoping to get um, any of those through to, to be, um, to be protected, then we'd love to know, we'd love to know what the process is. I know that there are on the um, gov.org, website there are a lot like 10 page documents about why something is protected and how it's protected and what the criteria are so it, it's re it is really complicated stuff um fascinating when you first mentioned well we, we you sort of said that appellation thing and then we went yeah that thing and yeah uh, i'm glad we've dug into it a little bit more because it's Although it's complicated, it's quite fascinating as well. It is. One of the famous ones is the, the Melton Mowbray pork pie, pork pie. And I know as a vegetarian, you won't be interested in this, Tracy. But if you want to use the name Melton Mowbray, um, it can only be applied to uncured pork fillet pies cooked without supporting hoops and made within a 10.8 square mile zone around the town of Melton Mowbray. You, they must be at least 30% meat um, and, they, um, uh, and they, they must be made from fresh pork. Well, there we go. So that's very specific, I would say. So don't you go making Melton Mowbray pork pies in Oswestry, Heather. That just isn't fun. No, I would always make it with a supporting hoop, you know me. In other news this week, a story caught my eye in um, or on inc.com. Um, we, we often um, quote articles. In fact, it's a great resource of all sorts of really varied and interesting articles. But the headline was jargon is a sign of insecurity. And I thought, oh, I need to I need to have a look at that. So um, Jessica Stillman, who's written this article earlier this month, um, asks us to imagine if we're hire, hiring somebody for an important position in our company and two candidates come into interview and one of them uses jargon, left, right and centre, but the other speaks in very plain everyday language. What, what comparisons or differences might we draw from these people? And she says, your first thought might be, oh, the guy with all the or girl with all the buzzwords they're more intelligent they're more polished but actually there's been a study in california that suggests that jargon isn't a sign of competence or intelligence sometimes it just um, shows that someone is insecure and they feel that if they chuck those gems in it's going to kind of mask their lack of knowledge um, whether or not they've actually got that level of knowledge and I just thought it was a really interesting point. And I tried to think of times when I might have interviewed people. And, you know, sometimes you do get to a point where you think, I have no idea what you're what you're trying to say. I'm not getting a sense of what this actually means for me in in terms of finding a reason to give you a job. Um, what, what are your thoughts on jargon, Tracy? Are you a fan of it or? No, I I. I... Got to agree. I think it's, well, it, it's perhaps other things as well as insecurity. I think perhaps it's also a sign of laziness or lack of ability to communicate. Because if you're using jargon, but you're not 
thinking, have I explained this well or have I put this in layman's terms? You're not really bothered about how you're communicating, are you? If you're just throwing jargon at people and expecting them to know what it is. I think that shows a lack of care about your communication. But having come from IT background and accountancy, and at one stage I had a job working um, with a lot of analysts, and not not really um, finding any middle ground with these. I tended to become the translator because I could speak IT, I could speak finance, and I'd just started to work in the with the analyst team. So I sort of um, translated all of the jargon there. And that's really made me very conscious of the fact that you can use jargon without realizing it as well. You know, so even if you yeah. intentionally um creating this barrier just if you don't just think that you know how long have I been immersed in this subject this this jargon's easy sometimes you have to take a step back don't you and just think okay what what would a normal person think of what I'm saying and a reasonably intelligent person even if they've never come across that bit of jargon um you know would they understand what I'm saying but also I find it's difficult because some jargon can mean different things in different professions. Mm, so you yeah. can go down one, yeah. one avenue with a, an accountant thinking that means that and an IT person thinking it means a completely different thing. You could have a whole half hour conversation talking about two completely different things. Yeah. And then real, yes. And then realize they, they, um, Going back to to this story and thinking about it in the context of recruitment, they they took the um, they took the exercise a little bit further, and they were looking very specifically at anxiety, and so they asked some volunteer MBA students to present a startup idea for a pitch competition, and the one group were told that they were having to pitch to higher status competition, i.e., established entrepreneurs, and the other group. Um, were pitching to lower status competition, i.e. undergraduates. And the researchers found that the more anxious participants were about their relative statement, the status, the more jargon they used, i.e. if they were pitching to the established entrepreneurs, they were more jargon centric than if they were talking to um, uh, lesser qualified people who they didn't need to prove themselves to because they kind of know I know more than you because I've <laughs> it's so I thought that was really interesting yeah, as that's well. really revealing that isn't it mm. yeah yeah so so that's jargon what um what caught your eye this week Tracy it's a, an interesting story from yesterday uh, I, I saw this on the Reuters uh, news feed and apparently Amazon have made a bit of a error with the launch of their new Swedish website. So just yesterday, this long-awaited launch has caused a bit of an uproar um, because there are translation errors. And they've mistaken the Argentinian flag for the Swedish oh. flag. Oh. So it, it just goes to show that even the big guys can make big mistakes here. I mean, to mistake the flag, that that's pretty horrendous but, I don't really know my flags are they vaguely similar I really don't know but you would think 
that somebody with the muscle of Amazon might have checked that out. Double check it, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also the, the faulty translations, um, they've actually included some offensive words in product descriptions. Oh, so no. So apparently, I'm, I'm, I don't think I can pronounce this word, but they used a Swedish word which means rape. Um, and it was used on several products instead of wrap, which is the correct Swedish word for a plant. Oh. And then some product descriptions use a Swedish word for male genitals instead of the word for rooster. I'll leave that to your imagination. <gasps> and a frying pan was listed as a product for women. Oh, no. And worst of all, um, the cost of products listed on the new Swedish website was higher than those on the German website, which the Swedes had been using before they had their own website. Oops. So, okay. Not surprisingly, this did affect Amazon share price yesterday. And yesterday afternoon, it was down uh, by just under 3%. I'm sure they will bounce back, but I think somebody might be in trouble there. Yeah. Oh, bad day at the office. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, I've got a story that appeared in The Guardian uh, at the end, towards the end of last week. Um, and my husband mentioned it and, and I said, oh, well, that kind of fits into what we're talking about on the show uh, this week. And it's around food and it's around you know, what we've been talking about the um the criteria very often is set by europe um by the european union and of course you know we're in a transition period now where you know things might change um but there was one article that uh, that caught my eye around the idea that um there was a case to try and prevent people calling you know we get a lot of plant-based products now eating you know plant-based food um so foods that don't contain meat having the label of sausages or burgers, for example. Okay. So, um, so like, or, you know, or um, vegetarian turkey or you know, whatever it might be. Um, and there were people who didn't, who wanted to own, who wanted the word sausages or burgers to only apply to meat. Oh, but that's really and, weird because I, I would say that, sausage is a shape and a burger is a shape surely yeah well that's yes that's what I think um and the argument was that um it might mislead people <laughs> really but, but actually the European Consumer Organization said um hang on a minute customers aren't confused by a soya steak or a chickpea based sausage so long as it's clearly marked as vegetarian or vegan and in fact those words just help people to kind of figure out how to integrate them into a meal yeah. so, you know here, here's a thing do with it what you might do with a burger well isn't it isn't the same confusion possible um if you had like um a beef sausage or a pork sausage or a chicken sausage i well Absolutely. I mean, it was overruled, but but part, but but part of the argument was around um, emissions and sustainability and, you know, the vegan movement, etc. And, you know, what, why we want to move away from meat based products anyway. So I think, you know, it, it became quite political. Um, and apparently terms like 
almond milk and soy yogurt are already banned in Europe because now I haven't noticed this, but they say that purely plant based products cannot be marketed using terms such as milk, butter or cheese, which are reserved for animal products. So nut butter, peanut butter. Well, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. But it's it's a bit more it's a bit more in depth than than it first appeared. And it and it maps on to um, some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier with the. Uh, well, that's intriguing. But I'm, I'm glad I can still have a veggie sausage and a veggie burger, Heather. You're listening to the business community on Callan FM. And this week we're reviewing a book that I haven't read, but Heather has read. And I'd be interested to know, Heather, where you got the idea for this book from. Well, it's a bit of a cop out, really, because I was driving down to Cheltenham on Saturday and I had the radio on and I was listening to Graham Norton and he was interviewing the author of this book, that well-known satirist and comedian, John Cleese. And he he was talking about the book that he's written, a book about creativity. And it just I pricked up my ears because I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. you know, what is creativity, etc. So I, I liked the interview. I enjoyed what he was saying. Um, and a lot of it made sense. And I thought, Do you know what, I'm going to look, I'm going to look for that book. And it's it's a small book. Um, you literally can read it in an hour, hour and a bit. Well, it's true yeah. to its name then, because it's it says creativity, a short and cheerful guide. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is precisely that. It is short, it is concise. You can see that I've got lots of post-it notes in it. Oh, that's good. That's a good yeah. start. So I love it. And and yeah, okay. He's not reinventing the wheel, but he's he's reminding us that actually, and he starts, he starts in the introduction, he says, uh, by creativity, I simply mean new ways of thinking about things. So, you know, when people say, oh, well, I'm not very creative. Do you have the ability to think about things differently? And if you don't, well, how might you do that? So that's kind of the premise of the book, really. Uh, But I know that you've done a bit of snooping around the subject matter. So what have you what have you come across? Yeah. So I um, had a quick look at Amazon. Um, Other book resale resellers are available. However, um, sadly for Amazon, I didn't buy the book from them. I read a number of reviews and, it, and it, they were pointing towards a talk or sorry, a training video that uh, John Cleese did in 1991. I don't know if you, anybody of a certain age can remember. Uh, John Cleese was quite big in business training videos mm. in the 90s. And this t- it was a talk um, and it's um, part of the suite of material that he uses in his business training videos, but this was specifically a talk to business people. And actually then I went on to watch a couple of other interviews, one with Good Morning America and one um, Late Night with Seth Meyers. And I pretty much got the gist of it. I liked it, but I think I've taken from it what I need, particularly from that talk. These are all on YouTube. So the Good Morning America interviews, Late Night with Seth Meyers, and then the longer talk, um, John Cleese training, creativity and management. They're all on YouTube and available to watch. But 
what I did find really interesting was he's very consistent. He doesn't seem to have developed it massively from his talk in 1991. So I got a lot of detail from the 1991 talk, but from what I could see in the interviews, it hadn't changed drastically, which actually, to be fair, I really like the material in 1991. So it doesn't matter that it hasn't changed drastically from to now put it in a book. Did Have you seen any of the earlier stuff, Heather, or, or was this all new to you? Well, I've seen, I've heard him talk on occasion and I, I think I've even, might even have seen some of his training videos throughout the course of my career. Um, so I kind of, because I find him quite an interesting character anyway, because, you know, he's, when you hear him talking, he's actually, he's very witty. He's quite serious, you know, and yet some of the stuff that he did, you know, with Monty Python and, and, um, what well, uh, you know, another thing, you know, he wrote a fish called Wonder and you know, those faulty types of towers, things. don't forget faulty towers and faulty, yeah, faulty towers, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's quite, a, I think he's quite interesting in that regard, but he talks actually in the book about the one of the training um films that he made, and uh, this particularly is where he's he said, um, I was the training film was about decision making. And he talked to various experts on the subject and they explained to me that if you have a decision to make, the first question you must ask is, when does this decision have to be made by? Um, he says, you, you know, there's always a cutoff point. And then he talks about why would you make the decision sooner than you absolutely need to? Because you might come across some new information or you might get some new ideas. And he's talking very much about, you know, sometimes we stifle our own creativity by deciding that we've reached the end point. Yeah, I, I picked that up from some of the interviews and the talk that he did, um, basically saying in the rush to prove that you're decisive and you can take action, you miss out on that pondering time, that opportunity yeah. to, to think and potentially change your mind. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I like that. Know when you've got to make the decision by and don't make it before then. Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole, although the book is is about creativity, it's actually about progress and thinking. And one of the things he does talk about, and this is something that I identified about myself a few years ago, and it was kind of revolutionary, was that whole, um, you know, sometimes when you're, you're trying to make sense of something or you're trying to work through something and you just get, it all just gets a bit too much and you can't find the answer then so you, you leave it and you go home and you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and you come back to it and you go, oh yeah, that's the answer. And he talks a lot about processing information while we're asleep. And I know I certainly do that. I can, if I read something to, tonight before I go to sleep, it will have made sense to me tomorrow morning, possibly more than it, than it did this evening. Yeah. I don't know if that's absolutely. just because I would have had half a bottle of wine. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I, th I think that um, is part of, I don't know if he talks about this in the book, but in one of the talks, he talked about getting into the open mode and this right, idea, you need space, you need time, you need more time, confidence and humour. And he said you needed those five things to get into the open mode. So um, in, a, in the interview we did with Seth Meyers, he was saying that, that talking about space is that you have to create that space because if you've got interruptions, if you've got tasks and things that you have to do around you, you can't be playful. 
And he said, ideally, you need to create space of an hour to an hour and a half to allow your mind to play with the problem. And I, I, I think that was from the book. Um, he said in the first 15 minutes, you'll worry about the things you should be doing while you've created space to play. Yeah. After 15 minutes, those things should start to settle down and you start to have ideas. So it, it was interesting. He went on to say about how that's even more difficult to do in the workplace because the consideration is that you're slacking if you if you're creating that space for yourself. So it, it's got lots of interesting implications. I don't know if a similar thing, if he used humor in the book quite as much, but in the talk, um, he was obviously addressing a room full of business people and he was telling jokes throughout it um, and a sort of like breaking up the talk. But at the end, he also did this little monologue about, right, now we know how to do that. Here's what we need to do to make sure we're the best creative in the business and we keep all of our subordinates not creative. So he flipped it on its head. I thought yeah. that was a really nice little device that he used, essentially saying, right, we, we want to be the kings of creativity. Yeah. So what we have to do is to stifle it all for everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He uses humour quite a lot. Um, but he, he actually, uh, at the back of the book, he you know, he gives some hints and suggestions things that if you want if you've if you've had an idea uh, whether that's a book or whether you're progressing an idea how you move that forward and in fact I bought this I, I, I bought a copy I, I thought it I mean certainly it's not very expensive it's about six quid or something five six quid um, brilliant stocking filler for anybody who's thinking of sending a, a little gift to somebody through the post which won't it's not heavy um but I bought a copy for a guy that I know who writes and paints and um and he's he's already messaged me and said I yeah I love it you know it's 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 just what it it talks to him so it, it's a cracking little book um you didn't buy it Tracy because you managed to find what you needed but yeah did you consider buying it for somebody somebody else well now you mention it yeah but I, I'll know not to buy it for you for Christmas <laughs> but yeah as, as you mentioned it you know it's a nice little purchase a stocking filler type idea just one thing I wanted to say about it is another really important takeaway um, from one of the um, videos I watched he was he was quite keen to emphasize that creativity isn't a talent it's a way of operating so it's not an ability that you either have or you don't have and it's not related to IQ. I think that's really important. When you started off this section, you, you, you were saying about um, people be, being concerned that they are not creative. It's just yeah, he, changing the way you work and the way that you think, and anybody can be creative. Yeah, and he does very much start the book on that, on that tone, that you know this isn't about you being able to paint a masterpiece. This is about you being able to think differently about stuff and creative thinking as much as anything. Okay, so on that note, maybe what I'll do for um, cheap Christmas presents is I won't buy them the book. I'll just send them a card with the um, reference to the YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> Our profile this week is of an economist called Mariana Mazzucato. And we have already mentioned her before because um, I think it was when we were talking about donut economics and and 
economics in general and she's written a book that I actually own I've got it on my shelf just to the right of me where I'm sitting recording called The Value of Everything she's written a number of books in fact her list of writing is so long that I gave up actually cutting and pasting it into my notes because she is an academic and I guess what I've learned is academics write a lot of stuff so she is um, dual Italian and US citizen. She's married to, this sounds rather glamorous, she's married to an Italian film producer and her parents were called Ernesto. We like Ernesto, don't oh, we? Oh, that's a good name. And Alessandra. And they moved to New Jersey in the early 70s. And um, her father was a physicist at Princeton University. And Mariana herself spent a lot of her life in America before returning to Europe in 2000. She's currently a professor in economics of innovation and public value at UCL in London and founder and director of UCL's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Heather, I'm guessing from the face that you're pulling, I can see you. <laughs> <laughs> over zoom that that this type of economics isn't your thing it isn't and, and i am embarrassed to say that because I, I i read various stuff i started watching one of her ted talks she did a desert island discs um which not only did i not like a choice of music um <laughs> I, I i found and i i just I think it just goes over my head and I think that says more about me than it does about her. Um, and I think the, the only thing that I honed in on, I mean, apart from the fact that she, when she's not working, she swims, you know, so I'm much more interested in her as a person. And she talks about on Desert Island Disc, she talks about her family's background and, you know, some of the challenges that her family have faced. However, the one thing which obviously comes from the from the book which that you've got on your your bookcase is um in, in the value of everything she talks about the difference between price and value and worth and i thought that was really interesting uh, the difference between price and value price can be understood as the money or amount to be paid to get something and value implies the utility of worth of the commodity or service for an individual and the amount charged by the seller for a product is known as its price, which includes cost and the profit margin. But then she goes on to talk about uh, certain set, certain people within the global economy portray themselves as value creators, when in reality, they were just moving existing value around, or even worse, destroying it. So I think, you know, from that, she talks about how we need to recognize what adds value, what is valuable. And it's not just it's not always something tangible, you know, a commodity or whatever. Yeah, we referred to that idea before when we talked about uh, the book Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And, oh, crikey, and, yeah. yeah. Father of economics. And it's like, well, actually, there was an awful lot of value that isn't considered by traditional uh, economics, which, which goes on, you know, so examples given like the the work of the person who cooked adam smith's dinner which was mostly his mother i think and, yeah. and all of that stuff that actually doesn't have an economic value attached to it 
So it's I find it fascinating. That said, um, I haven't read all of her books, and she she's written The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths. Um, that was in 2013. She co-edited a book in 2016 called Rethinking Capitalism, Economics and Policy for Sustainable and Inclusive Growth. And then the book that we were just referring to in 2018, The Value of Everything. And it brings the debate about value to the heart of economics. It's something that's been forgotten for so many years that I think it's it's really the time for discussing it now. And, and she's really sort of um, leading the charge towards discuss, discussing value creation as opposed to value extraction and destruction. In her TED talk, um, she does go back to, um, she goes back to 1400 or something when she starts to talk about, you know, value and and worth and and stuff like that and she and she relates it back to you know when we didn't live in anywhere near as complex an economy as we live in now um and and she maps from that she takes us forward to how we've kind of arrived at where we are and then onto why her sort of um, disruptive way of thinking um seeks to challenge the status quo and you know, and, and move us in the right direction um, in terms of um, long-term economic growth. So it, it, I can see that it is very interesting. I, it just, that I need it to be delivered in a different way for, for me to be able to connect with it and engage with it, yeah. I guess. But did you see the most recent um, TED uh, offering from, from Mariana? She had a virtual conversation with uh, uh, the TED Global Curator in June this year. No, I didn't see that. Talking there about um, the COVID-19 crisis and how it's an opportunity to do capitalism differently, sort of touching on what we've been talking about over the last few months, really. Um, she says, in the face of three simultaneous crises, health, the economy and climate, um, we have a chance to do capitalism differently. And why as she talks about why we shouldn't go back to normal after the pandemic and actually how governments need to rethink what they're offering and how they can work together with businesses to solve the problems it's interesting i just saw on twitter um a couple of nights ago that that donut economics is starting to be endorsed by uh, the political leaders in ireland now and donut economics right. is something that we've discussed as well previously yeah, in the show. Yeah, yeah. It's a new way of looking at economics with sustainability in mind and, you know, not just going back to the new normal. So I think, you know, there's going to be quite a lot of development in this area. I'm looking forward to it. You're frowning, so maybe not so much. But I also had to look at Twitter, obviously, because I always like to check everybody out in Twitter. So Mariana is on Twitter. She's got nearly 140,000 followers. She's been on Twitter since 2011. And she says on there, her bio says, UCL professor, director of Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, author of Entrepreneurial State, Value of Everything, Four Kids Keep Me Laughing, Breadmaker. Brilliant. I like yeah. that. 
you did get a bit of a sense of that in the desert island thing actually and she i think the last piece of music that she chooses she she talks about you know when you've you've had a busy day and crikey she is a busy woman i mean she's writing and she's speaking and she's you know she's being interviewed and all sorts of things um but she says that this piece of music she said when i get home i kick my shoes off and my kids are at home i pour myself a glass of wine and we sing this at the top of our voices and it sounds like they sort of they reconnect and it's kind of like you know she's home now so um yeah yeah a great woman but i think you probably um can appreciate her her brilliance more than i can well, I, I like the subject material. Put it like that, yeah. Um, I've I would recommend the value of everything if you like a little bit of um, the the new way of thinking of economics. Anyway, we'll put the links for everything we've talked about in the show, including the TED talks as usual, and uh, that will be in our blog to accompany the podcast on our website, which is thebusiness.community. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.